what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. When I learned that the man who killed her was a hit and run, and when I learned that the man who killed her would probably not face any jail time, much less prison, I was really motivated by rage and anger. The thought that someone could kill my child and get away with it simply was not acceptable to me. My hope is that people realize that all of these behaviors that we talk about are choices that people make that they don't have to make. Because I firmly believe that if more passengers would speak up, we wouldn't have a need for laws. And if they would bring social pressure onto those drivers who do by not riding with them, I really believe that would make a tremendous amount of difference in people's behavior and attitudes. My focus, it wasn't just on saving lives. It really became primarily changing attitudes, which in turn led to the changing of the culture of the nation. I want to welcome our listeners to the uh, Keep Kids Alive podcast. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the uh, executive director and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. We're a traffic safety education nonprofit that's 23 plus years old based in Omaha, Nebraska, but we've worked with over 1,700 communities around the world with traffic safety initiatives over that time. And our mission is simply to help make streets safer for all who walk, cycle, play, drive, and ride. So that's all of us uh, in some way, shape, or form. And really just very privileged today to have Candace Leitner with us as our guest. Candace is the founder of Mothers Against Drunk Driving and she uh, currently works with We Save Lives, and we'll learn more about that in our conversation as well. So, Candace, welcome to the Keep Kids Alive podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to finally see you in person. And likewise. You know, for our listeners, when we record this, we have the opportunity to see each other, which certainly makes it more conversational in tone and in sight as well. So, delighted to have the uh, setup to allow us to do that. I really want to dive into your story. You know, many of our listeners will be aware that you founded MAD in uh, 1980 in honor of your uh, daughter, Carrie. And I guess, you know, in starting our conversation, I'd like to focus on Carrie and, you know, what was her spark and her light that sparked you at that time to start MAD and that really has been a guiding light for uh, the work that you have done, the service that you have done since then? So Carrie was the oldest of my identical twins uh, by four minutes. And she, she, probably she was the most like me. That's what everybody used to say, that she was the most like me. She was really bossy, which was so cute. And she was the one who would tattle on her brother and sister whenever they would do something wrong. So I was always kept in the loop. And it's funny because when she died, I remember, and it's ironic what you remember and the thoughts that you have. But one of the things that when I was, you know, becoming sane again, that thoughts that I had was, oh, my God, who's going to tell me what Serena and Travis are doing? How am I going to know if they do something wrong? She was very popular among her friends. She had a lot of adult friends and because she had sort of an adult mind. She was a good kid. She used to tell me all the time. 
she'd say, oh, mom, I'm never going to leave home. I'm going to live with you forever. (laughs) (laughs) When I grow up, I'm going to be in real estate just like you, and I'm going to stay here. And then she was having a little bit of a weight issue, she thought, and weighed a little bit more than her sister. And so she used to love those boxes of cheesecake, you know, that you would get at the grocery store, like an instant mix. And she would, I've got to quit eating those. I've just got to quit eating those. And then she would go up and hug the refrigerator. And she'd say, <laughs> I can't, I can't. Oh, here's why. Anyway, funny kid. She used to imitate people. We used to give her Academy Awards. She'd come home and do this imitation of her teacher that day or one of the students or whatever. She was pretty good too. Anyway, she was a cutie. When you think back on Carrie's death and uh, your subsequent response to that in, in founding MAD, you know, how did that process happen for you? I would imagine that you were deep in grieving and mourning, but how were you inspired to uh, move forward? Inspired is an odd word, but when I learned that the man who killed her was a hit and run. And when I learned that the man who killed her would probably not face any jail time, much less prison, I was really motivated by rage and anger. The thought that someone could kill my child and get away with it simply was not acceptable to me. And at that time, this is years ago, but at that time, drunk driving was very socially acceptable. Everybody did it, you know, legislators did it, judges did it, people joked about it on TV, you know, it was just a a very common occurrence and nobody took it seriously. And so I realized that part of that attitude was the reason, or maybe a large part of that attitude was the reason why even judges didn't take it seriously. And even police in many cases didn't take it seriously. You know, they would find somebody that was drunk driving and they would just tell them to go home or they would drive them home. And so I decided that this needed to change. And so I set out to change it. And what were some of the first steps that you took in in making that change? (laughs) So, well, number one, I was a registered voter. So I knew nothing about the electoral process or who was who and what was what. So I had to learn how to register to vote, which is a long, funny story. But and then I was trying to figure out how I could I I started doing research. And this is back in the day when there was no Google, no Internet, no computers, nothing. And so I contact I had heard about and I don't remember how about this organization, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So I contacted them. And they sent me a bunch of leaflets and pamphlets and whatever, telling me about drunk driving and what was going on. And then I started meeting with people. I started meeting with the attorney general's office and the CHP who were godsends in this whole process and district attorneys. And I just started meeting various different people to learn what drunk driving was all about and what the justice system wasn't about or should have been about and how frequently it happened. And, you know, it was just a process of doing a lot, a lot of research and meeting people and talking to people and finding out why they felt nothing was being done and what they thought should be done and how they thought it could be done. And I decided, I don't remember how the idea came to me, Maybe my dad, but I said, oh, maybe I should get more people involved because it was just me. And so I put an ad in the San Francisco Chronicle, the Los Angeles Times, the Sacramento Bee, and I lived in Sacramento. And I said, if you've been impacted by a drunk driver 
and you want to do something about it, contact me. Well, the Sacramento Bee picked it up and actually did a cartoon of a cute, funny, drunk driver. You know, driving drunk. It was real cute. And it was like, hmm, I wonder what this group is about. Well, I was only contacted by one person and she lived in L.A. And she was an injury victim. And she had tried to do something about this issue without success. And she actually came up to Sacramento and I invited all my neighbors and friends to come to this meeting. And we sat down and talked about it. And out of that came the petition drive. And it was just sort of a domino effect. You know, we would start here and we decided to deal with it issue locally and statewide and nationally, because it is an issue that affects all three realms. And um, we developed a strategy and, you know, I mean, I could talk for hours about what we did, but that's going to be part of my master class um, for the Mentor Institute. But anyway, it, you know, eventually things began to happen. Well, how did MAD, how did Mothers Against Drunk Driving uh, evolve from that initial? Well, that was MAD. Okay, so that was MAD. So you named that your- That was MAD. I started MAD the day they called me to tell me he had been arrested and I found out he was drunk. I started MAD that night. My girlfriend came up with the name MAD. My sister said, I know you because I was so livid. We had gone on to a restaurant for dinner and met everybody there. And I had stopped, the cops were doing the yellow line around her in where she was killed and we had pulled over and I stopped and asked them if they were investigating her death. And that's when I learned he was drunk, et cetera. And so when, and that nothing would happen to him. So when I got to the restaurant and I was filling everybody in, my sister said to me, I know you, I know you well, you're not going to let this rest. I said, you're right, I'm not. I'm going to start an organization. And my girlfriend piped up and said, you're going to call it mad. And at that time, it was Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, which eventually changed to driving. You know, once you established mad, you know, what was the evolution of growing it nationwide? I think probably the thing that really helped us, there were two things that helped us the most. One was a direct mail campaign and the other was a movie, which was up for two Academy Awards, two Emmy Awards, I'm sorry. It was a TV movie. And those two things really kind of propelled us into stardom, if you want to call it that. I mean, in the beginning, my media attention was mainly radio interviews, and then People Magazine did a story. And then, of course, we had a petition drive calling on the governor to form a task force. Then we did one calling on the president. And, of course, they did. So it was the successes that we had, and fairly quickly, by the way, even though it was a lot of hard work, we started the petition drive in August to the governor, Governor Brown at the time, and he agreed to the task force several months later, um, I think about three months later. But I was a, a nuisance. I used to go sit in his office and carry balloons because he wouldn't see me and I would be obnoxious and I would bang on the door. I seriously was. I, I would bring lunch to the staff there because it was there so often. I would corner uh, Gray Davis and say, when is he going to see me? And they would just sort of, you know, blow me away. What was the purpose of the balloons? Was to be visible. Okay. Yeah, it's just very visible and very obvious. And, you know, people sitting in the office waiting for their appointments would ask me what I was doing. And I would say, I'm trying to see the governor because we need to do something about drunk driving and I want a test horse, you know. So um, I just always <laughs> Being really, I used to take newspaper articles and I would highlight any mention of us and I would hand them to the staff and to Gray as they walked by and I'd say, go show these to the governor. <laughs> and then one day 
I had come from a big, major, major press conference in D.C. And we were calling on the president at that time to form a commission. And when I got back, I had a meeting set up with all of the governor appointees. And I had not been able to see the governor. I hadn't been able to talk to him, nothing. And to see if I could get their support on the governor's task force. And so, and we got a lot of front page news out of this press conference. And one of the questions that was asked me was by one of the, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the LA Times was, have you been able to see the governor? And I said, no, because he's more concerned about titsy flies in California than he is about dying children, which was my belief at the time. Um, because he was going up and down the state looking at farms because we had this infest of tits and flies or whatever. And that was major front page news. So I think that was even the headline. But anyway, I was in his outer office meeting with all these governor appointees and I wasn't feeling well. I was tired and it had been a long trip and done a lot of media. And so I just really wanted to go home and see my, my two surviving children in a week. And so I just sat down. I said, all right, I just want to know you're for this or against it. Just let me know up front. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I'm tired. I want to go home. I'm so blunt. And they kept talking and trying to keep me there. And I kept saying, you know, I've really got to go. I just want your yes or no. And finally, I got up. I, you know, I just wasn't getting anywhere. And like I said, they kept talking and saying, stay, stay. And I got up and this guy came in whom I had met before. He was a governor assistant or something, came in the room and came up behind me. And he said, I want you to come with me. And I said, no, I want to go home. <laughs> he said, no, I want you to come with me. And I said, no, I, I want to go home. And I didn't, I didn't get what was going on. Everybody was looking at me very expectantly. And I seriously didn't get it. And finally, he said, it was supposed to be a surprise. And finally, he said, you need to come with me because the governor wants to see you. And it was supposed to be a surprise where he was going to come get me. I was going to, I guess, just blindly follow him <laughs> into the governor's office. And so anyway, he took me to see the governor. The governor told me I got my task force. Well, it kind of reminds me, uh, one of our earlier podcasts had talked with representatives of Families for Safe Streets in New York, where they spent 24 hours basically doing a marathon around the governor's uh, office uh, at the Capitol, you know, to get his attention. Being creative in terms of, you know, how do we get the attention of those public officials that need to become engaged and begin to make these issues our own, you know, maybe for our listeners out there who uh, are wondering, you know, what can we do? I'm not advocating anything violent or anything, but you know, but to be creative in terms of getting the attention necessary in order for the critical meetings to take place so that movement can happen in addressing uh, these concerns. I want to backtrack just a second. You know, how did the movie come about and, and what's the name of the movie? So our, our listeners might be able to you know, hop on the internet and find it. It used to be on the internet and then it went off and then it went on. I don't know where it is, but it's called Mothers Against Rope Drivers, Candy Lightner Story. And so how that came about, I 
was contacted by Michael Braverman, who at that time was a writer for Quincy. Do you remember Quincy? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is before probably. Jack Klugman. Yeah, most of your viewers' time. It's a good good Jeopardy tidbit for our our listeners uh, if you ever get on the show and and that comes up. (laughs) So anyway, he told me they were going to do a story about drunk driving. And the story would be someone wanted to actually deliberately kill someone and they were going to do it via drunk driving because nothing would happen to them. So that would be their way of killing this person. And he wanted to know if I would be a consultant, unpaid consultant to the show. And I said, sure. So they had a list of questions that they asked me and I was in Sacramento, they were in LA. And it just so happened that I was going to be down in LA for a task force meeting. So I asked him if he'd like to come to the task force meeting and kind of see firsthand, you know, what we did. And he said, yes. And in the meantime, I found out that the man who killed my daughter, who was sentenced to two years in a halfway house, which at that time was an incredibly tough penalty and only because of what I was doing or I never would have gone there, was able to drive his car to and from work every day and drive home on the weekends and still had a valid California driver's license. And I was livid. I was livid. And I started in about how could this happen? How could you let this happen? And I found out that that was very common. In fact, I I started crying. I was so angry about it. And I said, you know, he gets to go home to his family and I'm minus a child here. And and he's still driving on a California driver's license. And it was his fifth offense in four years, his second. Well, his fifth offense, not just arrest, but crashes because he had hit out another woman in a car the night before he killed my daughter. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So when I left, Michael was in the audience and had seen and heard this. And so, and I was with Marilyn Sabin, who was with the Office of Traffic Safety at the time. And he said to me, would you like to come over to the studio to watch Quincy being filmed? You know, would you like to go? And I said, yeah. So Marilyn and I went and, and they actually used my daughter's name, Serena, in the segment And we stood on the sides and we met Jack and, you know, all the people there. And then they asked me if I'd like to come up and meet with all the writers and producers. And I said, sure. And so we went and David Mosinger and Michael Braverman. So they started asking me questions about what I was doing, why I was doing, about my daughter, what happened, this and that, about my family. And so they said, well, you know, would you mind leaving for a few minutes? And well, uh, Michael said, and we'll come up. I'm going to come up and meet you up in my office and I'd like to talk to you. And I said, sure. I mean, I had no clue, no clue. So Meryl and I go up to his office and he comes up and after a few minutes, a while, and he said, um, has anybody approached you on making a movie about your story? And I broke out laughing. <laughs> I said, no, why? He said, well, we'd like to do it. I said, no. <laughs> I did. I said, no. And he said, well, you know, tried to explain to me why it would be a good idea. And I said, no, I considered it an invasion of my privacy at the time. And I said, I'm not interested. So he said, well, think about it and we'll talk more. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I left. And then what happened is Beverly Bayette did a major story in the LA Times about Barbara Bloomberg and myself. Barbara was a woman whose son was killed and her husband at that time worked on one day at a time. And she was my L.A. chapter. She headed up my L.A. chapter. And this story was like a a huge story. 
And when it broke, I literally had producers flying up to my home uninvited, knocking at my door with checks in their hand. I'm not kidding you. I was getting just inundated with phone calls. And so, and I didn't know what to do. And I was being told we can make this movie without you because of the court transcripts, et cetera. So I actually called Michael, whom I had talked to several times, I think, and he had actually come to several more events that I had done. And I said, I don't know what to do. He gave me the name of a lawyer who ended up heading up the studio, actually. And so I called the lawyer and told him what was happening. And he said, let's open it up for auction. He said, this movie's going to be made with or without you, and it should be made with you. And so that's how it came about. I, I think I had, I don't know how many offers. God, I got wined and dined. It was great fun. Every time I go to LA, they take me to some great new restaurant or to their homes for dinner. It was it really was fun, actually. And I ended up choosing Universal Studios because they were the first ones and they outbid everybody else. So I ended up going with them. What effect did the movie have on uh, not only spreading the message that you wanted to share? And if I could come back to just that, you know, what was that initial message that you wanted to share? And then, you know, how did the movie help to spread that message? So there was no specific message because this isn't something I went and sought. I didn't ask people to do a movie so they could spread this message. But what I realized in the beginning was when my daughter was killed, one of my neighbors came up to me. He was a good friend. And he said, when he learned that she was killed by a drunk driver, and he said, Oh my God, all I could think of when I heard this is that it could have been me that killed your child. And I thought, whoa, you know, and I realized that I really thought about that. And I realized then that we needed to change the country's attitude so that instead of thinking, gee, it could have been me that killed your child, they would think it could have been my child, you know, or my mother or my brother. So my focus really it wasn't just on saving lives. It really became primarily changing attitudes, which in turn led to the changing of, of the culture of the nation. So the movie, if anything, I would have hoped would have done that, was to change attitudes. Okay. And then the residual effect of the movie, though, I mean, I, I'm guessing that you began to hear from more and more people who wanted to get involved in various ways. Uh, was that actually a result of the movie airing or, you know, what happened in the, the wake of, of the movie coming out? Well, we were already getting major press at this point in time because of the president's commission, the governor's commission and task force and whatever. And I was already getting contacted by people all around the country who wanted to start chapters. And at that time, that was a grassroots organization, which it no longer is. And we were all volunteers, including me, which doesn't happen anymore. But it was a very grassroots, passionate, motivated, campaign-like organization. So, I mean, I was hearing from people left and right. The movie may have increased that, and I don't know that. I really don't. It may have. We never thought about, gee, what did we get before the movie and what are we getting after the movie? I think more than anything, though, the movie brought to light how deadly and dangerous drunk driving was and that people had choices and that they could not, you know, that there were other things they could do besides drink and drive. And I know in the first three years, 
we reduced deaths and injuries, I believe, by about 20 to 25 percent. So we were already seeing results from our efforts. And I think the movie just encouraged that or enhanced it. Since the inception of MAD, where has your mission and your passion for not only addressing the issues of drunk driving, but being familiar with your organization that you run now, uh, We Save Lives, how has your experience informed what you're doing now? And share a little bit about what are you doing now? So several years ago, a number of years ago, actually, I was doing consulting for for-profit entities and Drager was one and Alir was another and they both had devices, oral fluid devices that could test drugged drivers at, at the scene if they were pulled over. And they actually hired me to promote their ignition interlock devices, which I think are really a good thing. But I became really fascinated by this concept of testing for drugged driving. And I became, and my son, by the way, when he was four, was run over by an unlicensed woman on meds on tranquilizers. And so I was had also a personal reason to become interested in drugged driving. And at that time, this country, in its ongoing wisdom, decided that maybe we should legalize marijuana. And of course, they were without doing any preparation about what are we going to do about the increase in drugged driving, which was definitely going to happen, just common sense would say that. So I was going to conferences and I would see this booth over here with that group, nonprofit, and this booth over here with that group. And so as I was walking around, I would say to this organization such as yours, and I would say, are you working with any other groups or do you work on your own? And 99% were, no, we work on our own. And I was like, you don't work with, you know, this group over here, that group over here. I actually took some of them over and introduced them to other nonprofits. And they were basically no. So I decided that we needed an organization. We Save Lives is what it was called, is called. That would act as like a, a coalition of organizations and partners that would help promote their activities. And also I had been approached by a number of former NHTSA people and highway safety people and whatever to also start a movement because they didn't feel that the organizations that already existed were doing enough in certain arenas. And they too wanted me to start something again. They wanted me to get back involved. And so I thought, you know, drugged driving was really important. And at that time, distracted driving was getting noticed. And I thought, whoa, here's an issue that enough people aren't paying attention to and is socially acceptable. And because obviously I would do drunk driving. So I took on the three Ds, drunk, drugged, and distracted driving. And We Save Lives focuses on the three Ds. We are a partner organization. I think we have, I don't know how many partners we have now, 40 or 50. The only drawback is I thought all the partners would keep me posted on their activities so I could help promote them, which they don't. And so I can't. Like when we launched, but not while driving the campaign, but not while driving that you put on your cell phone. We did contact our partners and said, hey, join in or whatever. Some did. This recent one, National Passenger Safety Week, we got a great response. And this came from more than just my partners. It came from other organizations as well. And this is something we're going to be doing ongoing. So it was sort of a way, you know, the advantage of Matt back in the day is I had four 
452 chapters around the country and some in other countries. And so if I wanted something to do something, to initiate something, I had all this support around the country to get it done. And in turn, if one of the chapters had a great idea, they had all this support in getting it done. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to carry that concept without doing a mad, which I would never do again and don't want to do another one, where you're all independent, but we can all support one another in our campaigns and programs. And so that was the impetus that got me started with We Save Lives. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 is privileged to be a partner and was a partner with the first uh, National Passenger Safety Week, uh, which just concluded. You know, I I think it speaks to the uh, kind of the breadth of all the uh, concerns, the issues, the behaviors that need to be addressed in concert with each other, because I imagine many of our listeners are aware You know, so oftentimes when reports are done because of of crashes, of any kind of motor vehicle incident, and a reminder, I use those words purposely, that using the word accident is uh, an accident in and of itself, because because studies have shown over 95% of fatal incidents due to uh, vehicles are due to specific behaviors. They're not random. They're chosen at some point in time. And so recognizing that uh, oftentimes those reports show that there are multiple factors that come into play. And so, you know, we need to be comprehensive in the way that we work. And it's good that We Save Lives exists in terms of working to, to pull us together. I think with anything that comes along that has a, a newness and freshness about it, we have to learn to figure out how do we make that work to the best advantage of everyone? Because, you know, sometimes people have asked me, what effect has Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 had over the last 23 years? And I'll say, well, uh, you know, I think it's like a windshield and I scratched it with my fingernail. And if you look at it with a magnifying glass or something, you can see the scratches there, you know, so it there's something that has happened, but you know, the windshield still exists and there, which really speaks to how much needs to really be done. You know, it's not that anyone, uh, you know, mission and the impact of that mission is totally sight unseen. But, you know, the magnitude of what needs to be done and the folks that need to be engaged, you know, at the local, at the state level, I mean, really down to the neighborhood level, oftentimes, it's work that is ongoing. And there are so many things that come into play. When I think of Keep Kids Alive, Drive 25, as many of our listeners know, we have an initiative called Live Forward that helps to support families who have experienced the death of a loved one due to a traffic incident in uh, focusing on what good do you want to bring into the world in honor of your loved one who has died. You know, oftentimes the responses uh, have to do with what factors came into play as to how their loved one died, uh, because that's where their passion ends up being focused, whether it's on seatbelt use or uh, drunk or drug driving or or speeding or hit and run driving. Uh, there are so many factors that come into play. So I'm grateful that you've established uh, We Save Lives and hopefully we partners will truly learn how to be partners over time. Yeah, you just have to make it easily. Uh, some people send me things that I can't post them on social media because I don't know how to translate it or transfer it into the right document. So if you send me the right document that I can just take and post on social media and Facebook and 
whatever, we will do that. And we, and we have with the ones that have done that because that's what we're all about is supporting one another. I want to touch on something you said. And when you say what people think you've accomplished over, you know, 23, 25 years, the problem that we have in our movement is that our, it's very difficult to measure what results we have because it's really hard to have a control group here, you know, where you go speak to this group, but this group over here, you don't speak to. I have an issue with foundations and companies that won't give to groups like ours unless we can show best practices and the results and whatever, because we can't. We were fortunate and mad that we had such an impact and NHTSA could track it easily. But for the most part, we do outreach and education and whatever. And it's very hard to show. Yes, this group of students got the message, but this group of students didn't. But I think when you look at all of these groups together who are out there educating and speaking and showing videos and having contests and inviting young people to participate or have messages for parents or whatever, I just think that's why, and the trend unfortunately is going up on crashes, but I think that's why we've kept it where we have for so long is because of all of you all who are out there at your local level or your state level pounding the message home. I do. Well, and I, I think that, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, there are anecdotes that people share with us because, I mean, it's it, it really in a way is impossible to measure how many people are alive, you know, because people have behaved in a way that would help keep right. them alive. Right. I, I don't know of a bunch of studies that are being done or how you would do that to uh, to be able to quantify that. But it reminds me too, and I'll, I'll share a little anecdote from my own experience, is that when uh, we started Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 back in uh, 1998, we were fortunate that the uh, Omaha Police Department, they did a little speed study for us in our neighborhood. We started right out of our front yard. So we had some data and my wife, Wendy and I, we walked our neighborhood and we went to about 160 homes, which was uh, maybe a little over 10% of the, the neighborhood, just to share the idea and ask if people would want to get involved. And, you know, out of that, we only had two out and out negative responses. And I always refer to that as, as a parent, if 158 out of 160 interactions went well, you know, with the kids and it's like, well, that, that's amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But one of the things that happened while we were walking the neighborhood is, uh, you know, I knocked on this door and this guy opens the door and he, he immediately says, I know who you are. And I was wondering, okay, what's going to happen to me now? Because <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what he means by that. He says, yeah, you're the guy. And at that time, we were just experimenting with one yard sign that said, keep kids alive, drive 25 on it with our logo. And we had stuck it in our yard. There were no other signs existed anywhere. It was just my grand little experiment where I would uh, be out playing with the kids in the yard or looking through the living room window and I would count cars that would go by. And what I was looking for were brake lights. How many brake lights came on when people went by the sign? Over time, over 75% of cars were braking and it didn't matter where I had positioned myself. I mean, whether I was physically present or not. But this guy, when he, he said that, he goes, yeah, you're that guy. You're the guy with the sign in his yard. Every time I go by your house, I put my brakes on. And I said, well, thank you. You know, it's meant to be a friendly reminder. You know, we're, we're not trying to 
you know, roll basketballs in front of your car or, you know, curse at you or anything like that. And, you know, but it was refreshing to, to get that kind of feedback because, um, uh, like I say, I had no idea, you know, what the guy was going to say. But, you know, oftentimes it can be those those anecdotes that come our way because people have become aware in some way, shape, or form of what the message is or what the mission is, and they've appropriated that. You know, I'm grateful for all you did, you know, back in the 80s to get Matt off the ground simply because as the parent of four kids who are in their late 20s or early 30s, you know, but thinking of when they came of age and the kind of practices that they did with their friends that I think were so informed by what they had learned over the years that, you know, they had a designated driver or they even... Or they called mom and dad to come to them. Or, yeah, or, or, or they had a, even a friend gave a breathalyzer to them, you know, to, to monitor their intake or whatever. And, you know, which would have been totally foreign, I think, probably for you or for me when we were younger, that, uh, that just would have been so shocking that if anybody had even talked about that and all. And so uh, you can see, you know, from the real life experience, what influence uh, has happened over the decades now, you know, but as you think about your mission and your work with We Save Lives right now in, in 2022, what are some hopes, some goals that you have in mind and heart for what you're doing at this point of your life? Well, I'm one of those who doesn't believe that technology is the end all, that, you know, self-driving cars, et cetera, will end all traffic collisions, et cetera. I don't. And so I love the GHSA report that came out that talked about a combination of behavior change, infrastructure change, et cetera. And, And that's kind of my philosophy. So my hope is that people realize that all of these behaviors that we talk about are choices that people make that they don't have to make. I'm real big on the courage to intervene promise in passengers saving lives because I firmly believe that if more passengers would speak up, we wouldn't have a need for laws seriously. If they would do what they can within reason to keep a driver from driving drunk and drugged and distracted, and if they would bring social pressure onto those drivers who do by not riding with them, I really believe that would make a tremendous amount of difference in people's behavior and attitudes. And I would like to see, this is going to sound odd to you, but I don't believe we have activists and the two genre of the word activists in the highway safety field. We have advocates, people who care deeply, but I haven't really seen many families for safe streets. Some of them is maybe the closest I've seen. But most of the groups I've seen are not what I would consider activists. They stay within the realm. They do what they can and a a fantastic job of reaching out. But they're not people that I see can change an attitude or a behavior. They don't go barnstorming the Capitol or picketing over here, all the things that we did back in the day. And I miss that. And I, I, I think we need more of that. We need more people yelling that this isn't right. And and as you said, being creative and getting everyone's attention to show it isn't right. I don't see enough of that at all. I just think we need more activism within the movement and we need it from the younger generation. I really appreciate you making that. And it's not a subtle distinction. It really is a distinction between advocacy and uh, activism. 
that's plenty for, I think, all of us to, to ponder as we uh, take away from this conversation. And grateful that you added that, that you inserted that into this conversation. One other thing that I want to add to that, though, is, again, that coming together. I had somebody call me the other day that heads up a, an anti-drug group, and, and he was looking for someone to, specifically a parent and a mother, to do what I did back in the day, because the groups are so fractionated. You know, you've got this group over here that's against this, this group over here that's against that, and they just don't work together. And I know because I've been dealing with it with them. And so we need to really work together and try as much as possible to carry the same message. I obviously support what you do and would post on it and, you know, carry that message And we need to do more of carrying the same message so that we look united instead of so. I mean, I get complaints from legislators about this. Oh, well, you know, if we do this, this group isn't going to support us. And what what is wrong with that? You know, so nothing gets done. So it really needs to be a work together situation where everybody comes together to get initiatives passed. Well, I love the fact that you use the word Carrie because your daughter's name is Carrie. And, uh, you know, so maybe we need to carry in a particular way that is really about a person. (laughs) I always like to say that any good traffic law is really about preserving relationships. That's why we have seatbelt laws and drunk driving laws. It it should be about preserving relationships in the first place. And, uh, you know, one of my two favorite questions, actually the two favorite questions that I always like to ask is, uh, who do you love and who loves you? Because if your answers to those questions are not motivation enough to do the thing that you should do in any particular situation, I'm not quite sure that a plethora of laws is going to, you know, step in and make you be somebody that you haven't chosen to be in the first place. It brings it down to the personal, the relational, who cares about me? Who am I coming home to? Who's coming home to me? Because to me, those are really ultimate motivations. Uh, you know, I think about our mission for Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 was born really out of our four kids who were between four and 10 years of age. And it's like, yeah, I care about the kids in the neighborhood, but it starts with the kids in our own home. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I used to tell people, and and whether you know this or not, and I don't know how much you know, but this was the second time that my family had been impacted by drug driving. And then I'd had a son run over by a drug driver. And all I could think of is, oh, my God, I've got to keep this from happening to my other two children. I have to keep my other two children alive. And I think that is the motivation for a lot of people is not just keeping the world safe, but keeping their own family safe. I'd like to begin to wrap up, you know, if you could send one message, you know, one message to our listeners is kind of a, a takeaway from all of this, you know, what would that be? It would be to have the courage to intervene when you see someone that's going to make a dangerous driving choice. I just want everybody to stay safe, stay well, make safe driving choices and be a good example to their families, you know, and again, have the courage to intervene when somebody's going to do something incredibly stupid, selfish, and dangerous. Well, thank you, Candace. I am so grateful that uh, you took the time to uh, share with us today and look forward to uh, hearing from our listeners. To put in a plug for We Save Lives, your website is? WeSaveLives.org, and we're still promoting passenger safety. So if you want to get some good tidbits, see some videos, learn things that you can do as a passenger, 
or parents. We have a checklist on there for parents to download on questions they should ask their team before they get in the car with someone else. You can go to www.nationalpassengersafety.org or we wesavelives.org. It's on our website too. So, And if any of our listeners are coordinating efforts through your own nonprofit, be in touch with Candace through We Save Lives. And, you know, let's look at how we can cooperate together because I know we and our work with Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 have benefited so much in partnering with organizations like Families for Safe Streets and with the Connor Lynch Foundation uh, out in California and with Street Racing Kills as well. Any organizations like that that really complement each other because, again, who do you love and who loves you? It's all about the people that we love and care for and who love and care for us. This is an issue that impacts all of us, all of us. Absolutely. You know, I've worked with a project in the past called Flashing Your Brights, and it's a series of five informal intervention tools. I call it kind of a 30-second intervention that anybody can learn to use when you see somebody engaged in a risk behavior. You know, that could have to do with use of drugs, alcohol, or other drugs. But it also can refer to what happens within a car. Utilizing those tools, I think of when our oldest son was uh, practice driving uh, when he had his permit, and we were out on the interstate, and there was a car weaving in and out of traffic. And so uh, I said to Matthew that any one time between 1% and 3% of drivers are driving under the influence of something, and you can't do anything about that. I said, but what you can do is create space between yourself and other vehicles. That's something that you have control over so that when somebody comes along that way, you have an opportunity to react and to keep yourself and whoever else might be in the vehicle safe. My takeaway from that was kind of doubled because our second son, Michael, was in the back seat and he just asked the question, well, dad, how do you know this? And just him asking the question let me know that he was listening. Just flashing your brights is like you do what's in your power to do to catch people's attention so that they can make a decision to adjust their own behaviors. And, you know, all of us are capable of doing that in some way, shape, or form. If our listeners are interested in learning more about flashing your brights, hop onto our website at keepkidsalivedrive25.org and shoot me an email and uh, we can talk about that. To make a donation to keep that mission going and growing, kkad25.org is the place to land. So thank you very much. And again, thank you, Candace, for being so candid with us and look forward to all the good that will continue to happen through your mission, your service, your commitment, your passion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time.